welcome. Uh, today's sermon is going to cover some difficult uh, areas, some difficult subjects that I just want to mention to y'all at the top. We have been preaching through the genealogy of Jesus, and uh, in Jesus' family history, as you just heard read, there's some very noteworthy people. A few weeks ago, we preached on uh, Rahab, then we preached on Ruth, and then this week, we are talking about this person from Matthew 1.6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Today, we're talking about David and Bathsheba. Now, you may have grown up with a different understanding of that story than I'm going to present to you today, and I don't blame you. In 1951, there was a movie version of David and Bathsheba that featured Gregory Peck, Atticus Finch himself, and Susan Hayward, and if this is more akin to the depiction of David and Bathsheba that you grew up with, uh, you're not alone. There has long been a history of romantization of this story, of kind of seeing it as this epic Hollywood-type tale. Maybe that's what you grew up with. Maybe you grew up with the idea that Bathsheba was more of a seductress in this story, that she was kind of the bad guy. Let me just say that whatever you are bringing to the table in terms of your own history with this story, uh, we want to make room for that, but I also want to kind of set the record straight as we go into today's text. There have been variations on the interpretation of this story throughout the centuries. That's just part of how human beings learn to understand the scripture. And so in light of uh, the recent cultural movements, particularly around the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, there has been sort of a re-examination over the last 10 to 20 years of the story of David and Bathsheba and very genuine questions being raised around intent, around uh, sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual violence, those things being present in the text, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. There's certainly abuse of power in this text. And so all these things touch on very weighty issues, not just in the life of, of people writ large, but particularly people in the church. You know, in the last decade, to my memory, there have been at least a dozen, if not more, prominent figures in the church, leaders, even entire denominations, who've been embroiled in an examination of what does it mean to have power in the church? What does it mean to misuse power in the church? So these are the things we're going to touch on today. Uh, In my preparation for today's message, I talked with a number of women from our church who are domestic violence advocates, who are social workers. I talked with a physician who works with a lot of women who've been through things like this. Uh, So they really helped shape this message, and so I want to give a tip of the cap to them. I also just want to mention this statistic at the start. Uh, One in four women has experienced some version of sexual violence or sexual abuse. One in four women. This is a huge problem in our world, and it is a huge problem in the church. And because this story, the story of David and Bathsheba, it is in the scripture, we're going to talk about it. And God has called us to kind of look at it and examine it carefully and examine ourselves carefully. But I also want to say this too. If if your story kind of collides with this story in a particular way and you need some space, anytime while I'm talking today, you can take a minute, you can step outside, You can take a deep breath. If you already know this is going to be uncomfortable and you'd just rather not be in here, uh, that's fine. I I understand that at a level, and I want to make sure people feel grace around that. Also, after the sermon today and at the end of worship, we have a couple of people who said they would uh, be available to pray with you. Uh, So if that's something that uh, you would already kind of want to take advantage of, please know that that's coming. 
Okay, so we're going to step into these subjects bravely because God has called us to do it. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to launch into it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the time to be together. Thank you for the season of Advent. It's a season of preparation. Maybe we didn't know as we came in here this morning that we were going to be walking through a difficult text. Well, that's part of your preparation for us. It's part of us stepping into the calling you have for our church to be people of hope, to be people of grace, to be people of patience and love. And through this examination of the story of David and Bathsheba, through the words that you've kind of put around me and in me today, would your word become abundantly clear? Thank you for giving us the scripture. Thank you for giving us the story of Jesus that is not filled with superheroes, but is instead filled with ordinary people. May we learn from the stories uh, that we will talk about today. We ask in your name. Amen. So here's our outline for the morning. We're going to tell the story. We're going to catch up on what is the story of David and Bathsheba. We're going to talk about interpretation of that story, chart a course from sin to redemption, and then connecting to Advent. Tell the story, interpretation from sin to redemption, and then connecting to Advent. I'll just say at the top, this might not be the most Christmassy Advent sermon you have ever heard. You're welcome. Here's the story. Today's passage alludes to David and Bathsheba. When did they live? What was going on? David was the king of Israel after the time of the judges. He came into power, you might remember, being called up from the least of his brothers, from kind of a position of obscurity, Then he does battle with Goliath. Then he writes the Psalms. Then there's all these incredible things that happen to him. So his story of coming into power is quite remarkable. In the greater context of the time of the kings of Israel, they all kind of fell into three different categories. There were really, really good kings of Israel that did God's will. There were really, really bad kings that were just horrible to the people of Israel. And then there were kings that were kind of a mixed bag. Every single king who came in and around David was a human being and who was flawed. David's trajectory, though, is very interesting. He comes into the kingship kind of riding up an escalator, right? Like God continues to give him opportunity to use his power and his influence and his history to do good things. And really, from this moment on, from 2 Samuel 11 on, David's riding the down escalator, So his trajectory is kind of up and to the right, and we love that story, we love a good hero story, but then make no mistake, after today, he really starts to fall. So we're going to walk through uh, this text, and really, this text is a series of really bad decisions. Here's the first bad decision, 2 Samuel 11. Remember, we're reading this because it mentioned David and Bathsheba in the history of Jesus. So whenever we read about the history of Jesus, we're dropping down in the Old Testament to remember the story of the people of Israel and the story of God's faithfulness. 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. In one verse, we have two indictments against David. In the spring of that year, when kings normally go to war, who's the king, church? What's he supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be going to war with his people. At the very end, here's the other indictment. David stayed behind in Jerusalem. First bad decision is that David is not where he's supposed to be. 
Kings in the ancient Near East didn't just send off their armies to go do their bidding. Good kings went with their army. They stuck with them. They fought shoulder to shoulder with them. They developed relationships with these other men and friendships that were forged in this field of battle. This would have been super important. And the text names the fact that it's weird that David isn't there in battle with his men. So much sin happens because we're not where we're supposed to be. Now, the story continues. 2 Samuel uh, 11, verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David was very tired from not being in battle, so obviously he had to take a nap. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Here's some more bad decisions. David, being the king, lives in the king's palace, which would have been the tallest building in the city. He would have been able to see into all the neighboring uh, houses around him. He's on the rooftop, and he has a view into what would normally be a very private moment. Now, some schools of thought have said in the past, oh, Bathsheba was seducing David. She somehow knew that he was going to go wake up from his nap and wander around on the rooftop. If you read the rest of the text, what actually becomes apparent is this is in no way an act of seduction. Bathsheba is taking a bath out of fidelity to God. How can you take a bath and be faithful to God? What does that mean? During the time of the formation of the law of Israel, there were laws that were directed toward women around cleansing. So after the menstrual cycle, there was a process of cleansing that the women of Israel were called to step into. That may sound draconian and awful to us today, but that was how it was then. So Bathsheba is not so much being a seductress as she is taking a bath because that's what the law told her to do, because she was being faithful, because she was using this as an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm part of the Israelites. This is what Israelite women do. I'm supposed to do this out of faithfulness to God. So she's not doing this in a seductive way. That's important to note. Then David sends a messenger, and he learns something about her, and he doesn't just learn details about her. He learns who she is. He learns who her father is and who her husband is. And guess what? David knows both of those guys really well. David knows Eliam, her father, because Eliam, scholars tell us, was one of David's mighty men. Remember this fighting force that he had put together, these really battle-hardened warriors who stood beside David and fought with David. So he would have fought beside Eliam. He would have known him. He would have trusted him, had seen him as a very important person. And then Uriah... Her, uh, Bathsheba's wife is out doing what David should have been doing. David should have been fighting right beside Uriah. He's actually the one out there doing what's supposed to be happening right now. And so David is missing the opportunity to serve beside this man. So dad of Bathsheba is basically like a special forces guy and husband of Bathsheba is basically like a UFC fighting champion. This is not a good mix for David to be stepping into. And David knows them. He knows them. But it doesn't stop him. Just because he has a relationship, he has a friendship, he has a bond and a kinship with these two men doesn't stop David from doing what he wants to do. Because, as the Apostle Paul would later write, sin has already given birth to death. You know this, church. When you've already taken a few steps towards something that you know you shouldn't do and gravity just starts to carry you toward it, there's really nothing that's going to stop you. And that's where David is. Now, 
this next passage is just the real difficult one, so heads up. Then David sent messengers to get her, to get Bathsheba, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her, and the passage later tells us that she gets pregnant. This is where there's some discrepancy among scholarship. Does he send for her mean that she was brought to the palace against her will? Is she ordered to come and be with him? Does he ask her or invite her? We can't really tell. But one thing that we do know from the ancient Near East, when you are a king in a patriarchal society and you tell a woman to do something, it's not a question. It's not an invitation. David is, in a sense, using his office to get something that he wants. Every shred of this story points toward brokenness and sin and death. And you need to hear me say this. Everything that has happened thus far in David's actions and activity is wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong that they have stepped into this moment of adultery together. Remember, it takes two to tango. But in this moment, it's wrong. It's not okay. As we mentioned earlier, prior schools of thought have kind of framed this differently. But as I was studying this this week, and I thought about you guys, and I prayed about y'all, and I thought, how do I help this really difficult passage land and kind of come alive and be a cautionary tale in the lives of the faithful people of this church? First thing you need to know is it's wrong what happens between the two of them, however we interpret it. And I'm not just saying this. God is saying this later on in this same chapter, 2 Samuel 11, 27b, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Understatement of the year. <laughs> He's displeased with what David has done. This is wrong. God sees this as 150% wrong. And adultery, among all of the sexual sins that we can point toward, it's It's bad. It tears apart the covenants of marriage. It's a misuse of the beauty of intimacy. It's a misuse of how women and men are intended to be together in a covenant of marriage. It fractures families. Not only that, there's a misuse of power here. David is not only the king in terms of a political sense, he's a spiritual leader to the people of Israel. He has misused his spiritual power and authority in influencing the situation with Bathsheba. And guess what? This has happened far too often in the life of the church. And as a leader in the church, I just want to say it shouldn't be like this, guys. We shouldn't have a list a mile long of all these different Christian leaders who've fallen from misuse of power. By God's grace, this has not been part of my story, but it's literally that, God's grace and prayer that has protected and enabled the ministry that God's given to me to steer clear of this type of misuse of power, but we see it all the time. Individuals have fallen because of misuse of power. The largest Protestant denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Conference, has spent years reckoning with, working on, trying to examine their own history with covering up sexual abuse in their churches. I I was talking with a guy who's part of the SBC recently, and he just said, you know, there's some people that still want to sweep this under the rug, and I kind of can't believe that. Like, they did a detailed, thorough study of this, and they're still trying to figure out what to do with it. This has no place in the church. Misuse of power, adultery, using sex for the wrong purposes, it shouldn't be there, but here it is. And as a leader in the church, I just want to tell you guys, I'm sorry. This should not be the legacy and history of God's church. It shouldn't. This should not be something that we even get anywhere close to. But this is the nature of sin. 
This is the nature of human beings, and it is not to give permission to what we are talking about today. It's simply to say, we shouldn't be shocked that this happens, but we should not accept it either, and we should not say it's okay. So how do we move from sin to redemption in this story? This is not going to be a neat and tidy thing just because of how difficult and complicated this story is with the misuse of power and and all the other things that are at play here. But I want to point toward kind of these opposite trajectories as a way for us to understand how God is at work in this story. I mentioned this earlier. David's trajectory after this story, after this encounter with Bathsheba, it is straight downhill for him. Let me give you an example. Just in this chapter alone, or these two chapters, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David tries to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. He tries to deceive Uriah, who he knows, who he has fought beside. He then murders Uriah by having him sent to the front lines of battle when his scheme to obscure the truth doesn't work. So that sends Bathsheba, of course, into a place of mourning. He marries Bathsheba in her mourning, which is not a good idea. She gives birth to a son, and then the son gets sick, and then they lose the child. I mean, that alone is a horrible trajectory from this moment of infidelity, but it gets worse, you might even say. Years later, David is ruling, he's on the throne, and a son of his, Absalom, tries to kill him and overthrow his kingdom. I can't even imagine how painful that would be to go into mortal combat with your own child or to have my own child try to do something like that to me. I just, I can't fathom that. And then on David's deathbed, he is so muddled and so corrupted by the sin and the trajectory that he's been on. On one moment, he's giving orders for people around him to be killed. And the next moment, he's trying to disrupt the ascension of God's plan to the throne of of Israel. He's trying to put someone else in place to be king that God doesn't want to be king. So it's safe to say that since this moment of David and Bathsheba, this is not the Gregory Peck version of the story, this is the real-life version of the story, where things have fallen apart. Contrast that with the story of Bathsheba. Now, I've done plenty of studying of the scriptures, but I'm so thankful for this. Uh, Our teaching team had a professor from Seattle Pacific University named Sarah Koenig. She is a a professor of Old Testament, a really wonderful scholar. She's actually done uh, several different studies on Bathsheba. She came and spoke to us this week, and she offered some incredible insights into the life of Bathsheba that I want to share with you guys. Did you know that Bathsheba's story doesn't end in 2 Samuel 11? There's more to her story. She builds a life for herself and her children in the throne of David. Eventually, she ascends to a really important role of being queen mother. She's a a high-level advisor to the king. She's speaking from her wisdom and her maturity. In 1 Kings 1, when David is on his deathbed and he's making all these terrible decisions, she steps in and delivers a powerful rebuke of David. She says to him, you are not going to put this other guy on the throne. You're going to put Solomon on the throne because you promised God that you would do that. She reminds him of what God's plan is in that moment. I would encourage you to read 1 Kings 1 this week. It is powerful to hear her use her voice with such grace but such firmness and clarity. She's not going to let the horrible nature of the beginning of their relationship be the end of her story. She stands up for her son. And then, I didn't know this, but at the beginning of Proverbs 31, there's this interesting little note. Proverbs 31 begins like this. The sayings of King Lemuel, which his mother taught him. In the rabbinic tradition, Lemuel is another name for Solomon. 
Well, who's Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. Bathsheba, some scholars believe, is kind of a, a ghost author of Proverbs 31, which, by the way, Proverbs 31 has found its way into uh, kind of Christian consciousness around womanhood and around what it means to be a mom and what it means to be a godly person. It's a powerful proverb. And so the woman in this story, Bathsheba, is used by God in incredible ways. Now, I'm not going to imply for a minute that this somehow paves over the sin that we talked about at the beginning of the story. This doesn't put a neat and tidy bow on this. But it does present us with some lessons that we need to consider, especially in light of the season of Advent. Remember, Advent is a season of waiting. It is a season of expectation. For many people who have been touched by this Me Too movement, Church Too movement, many people who have experienced sexual abuse and sexual violence, waiting has been part of the game that is so painful. Waiting for your story to be told. Waiting for people to hear you. Waiting for justice. It's hard. There is so much pain wrapped up in the telling of these stories. And I just want to say, the waiting that you have had to endure, those of you who are survivors of this, especially from the church, the waiting is unacceptable. You've had to wait far too long for people to own their stuff and for there to be justice. And for that, I'm sorry. We see you if you are a survivor of these types of violence and abuse. And in the church, and we don't have a good track record of this, we desire to do better by praying with you, by coming beside you, by encouraging you, by helping you see that Christ is present in your sufferings and in your story. Now, I mentioned two things earlier that I want to go back to regarding what David has done, because he's not getting off the hook here. I said this earlier, so much sin happens because we're not where we're supposed to be. Think about David's situation. He was not out at war with his men. He was not being faithful in his duties as a king. Have you not been where you're supposed to be? As a spouse, as a parent. There's a lot of different ways to do this. You could not be where you're supposed to be by being on your phone and being distracted all the time and not giving your full attention to the people who love you and who need you. I think we've all been guilty of that in different ways. Have you been giving yourself to a different relationship than the one you're most committed to? Have you been entering into either real physical intimacy or relational intimacy with someone that isn't your spouse? Have you taken yourself physically to places that you know you're not supposed to go? When I drive over to Seattle on Mondays for our meetings with all the different Bethany pastors, I go around Lake City Way, which takes you along the top part of the lake, and I pass at least three, if not four, strip clubs. That's not where I'm supposed to be, and by God's grace, I'm not going to those places. Do you know where you're not supposed to be? Do you need to just keep driving? the next time something like that comes along your route. The second thing I mentioned earlier is related to David's connection with Uriah and Eliam. He had every reason, every relational reason to not enter into this tryst or whatever we want to call it, this encounter with Bathsheba. I don't mean to minimize it. But he has every, there are relational barriers to him doing this. He knows men who are connected to this woman. She's not some random person to him. 
And so my challenge in the midst of that church is when you feel like you're heading towards sin, when there's a gravitational pull towards something in your heart, pay real close attention to your surroundings. If David had had the thought of, man, I know Eliam, I know Uriah, I am not going to do this. If he'd pumped the brakes a little bit and said, this is not a good plan, we'd be telling a different story. God will never steer you towards sin, church. You will not have things put in your path from God that bump you towards sin. The enemy wants to bump you towards sin. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He will put things in your path, like strip clubs along the road, that will pull you down. And God will put things in your path, like Eliam and Uriah, to help you go, man, should I really be doing this? Ugh. Remember what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more? The trajectory that David could have had after he was confronted by Nathan, after he had the truth presented to him, he could have walked a different path. He could have gone and sinned no more, but he kept getting pulled back into the darkness. I think this is especially difficult for men to kind of set boundaries around ourselves and pay attention to our surroundings. Men, do you have someone like a Nathan in your life who can shoot you straight and tell you the truth and tell you to back off and tell you you need to do this differently? I'm very thankful that I've got a couple men in my life like that, and I want that for the men of our church. We are going to have an opportunity to do a version of this when we have coffee together. We'll have a series of coffees in the, in the winter and in the spring. And I just want to encourage you men, if you don't have a close friend, if you don't have someone that can call you on the carpet about your life and your marriage and your family and really lovingly challenge you, then I want to invite you to come and be a part of that. I'm very thankful for the voices of men in my life who have really helped me see clearly in some difficult situations. And this is true for women as well. We need people to speak into our lives and to pay attention to our surroundings with us and steer us toward the goodness and grace of Christ. Now here's the final encouragement I want to offer today. I mentioned Sarah, Dr. Koenig, who came and visited us and talked to us about the scripture. And one of the things we asked her was, Dr. Koenig, how can we help people step into this story in such a way that really build some bridges toward hope. Like, this is a difficult story. This is going to touch on some raw things for people. And so she offered this as a word of encouragement, and I offer it to you as well. Uh, There's a friend who works for a disaster relief agency, someone whose job it is to go into places that have been hit by earthquakes and hurricanes and famine and drought, someone whose job it is to go and be with people who are in the midst of some deep, suffering, suffering from cataclysm that they had no control over. And so this is Dr. Koenig's friend, and she told us the story of of talking to her friend, how do you do your job? How do you go back to these places over and over again where you know there's just going to be so much pain and so much suffering? It's just, it's got to be the worst. And her friend said to her, it is really, really hard to go to a difficult place. But she said this, and I offer this to you, church. This friend said that her job as a disaster relief worker is to go into these settings and remind people that this is not the end of their story. The fact that you are a survivor of a hurricane is not the end of your story. The fact that you have endured an earthquake or a famine or a plague is not the end of your story. It's part of your story. The fact that you have been a survivor of something awful that happened in the church or outside of the church 
It's part of your story, but it's not the end. It's not the summation of who you are. And I love that. I love that there's a person and there are thousands of people like this who are going into places of deep distress and reminding people, God has more for you. It may take a long time. We may have to wait. There may be steps backwards and forwards. There may not be as much ownership of things as we would like. But the hope of Christ is that he is the true and better David. The hope of Christ is that he will come and that he will rescue and that he will show each of us that we are part of a much bigger story. Just like the manger, just like the shepherds, just like the star, just like the angels, just like the wise men, they were playing in a symphony and the masterpiece presentation was Jesus Christ. So know this, whether you're thinking of your own story of survival or people that you know in your life who are survivors, you can, we as the church desire to, come beside you and walk with you into this greater story that God is writing in your life. Not being ignorant to the pain, owning it, holding it, sitting in the pain, moving toward the forgiveness and grace of Jesus that he longs for each of us to receive. So let's ask him to bring that into our lives. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that sometimes it can be difficult. And we don't want to diminish where anyone has encountered you today. I also just want to ask, Lord, that whatever you've desired to speak through these moments would really be heard, that you would set aside anything that's just from me and not of you, that you would instead bring to life the hope and the joy and the power of Jesus to rescue and redeem all things. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the king that did not fail. You are the king that did not give himself to sin. You gave yourself instead as a sacrifice for your people. God, remind us of that. Remind us that you will be with us whenever we face struggle. If we have been through the darkness of adultery, if we have lost a child, if we've been um, abused, if we have been uh, around someone who is misusing their power, Oh God, we hold that out to you. And that pain is real. And that distress is so hard. But we thank you, God, that in your mighty reign, Jesus, in your kingdom, you will wipe away every tear. You will restore every heart. You will bring hope. And it may not look like what we think it should look like sometimes, but it will be what you desire. So we give this all to you, and we give our whole lives to you. We ask in your name.